Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Now, here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. And there's one very important truth that God said about Abraham. Very important. And please turn to that in Genesis 18. We're going to come to it, but we're going to look at it now. Because here God is speaking about Abraham, and he's saying something about him that's very important, and it's true, it was true then, and it's true now in in our passage here in Genesis 16, 17, here we are. And what this is, is in Genesis 18, 17 through 19, where the Lord speaking to Abraham says these things. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? So here we can see God. He's having a conversation amongst the Godhead. He's asking a question. We're discussing it. Shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I do? And then he says in verse 18, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And then he says in verse 19, for I know him. God said, I know Abraham, I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. So God says about Abraham, I know Abraham, I know him. What did God know about Abraham? He says that Abraham would command. That is the word that he used. It's a very strong word command. It's Sava in Hebrew, Sava. And Sava is the same word that God used in Genesis 2, 16 through 17 in that passage we covered where it says, and the Lord commanded, Sava, the Lord commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Very strong word, Tzavah, commanded. So in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, God commanded Adam, Tzavah, commanded Adam, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he gave him a warning, in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now that was in Genesis 2, 16 through 17. Then four verses later after Genesis 2, 17, Four verses later, after God had commanded Adam to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did God do? He created Eve. So in Genesis 2, 21 through 22, we read, after God commanded Adam, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh. Instead, there a rib which he made, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman, and then he brought her unto the man. There's no record. There's no record of God commanding Eve directly. There's no record of God commanding or tzavah, Eve, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good evil with the warning that in the day that she ate thereof, she would surely die. See, God commanded tzavah, Adam, to not eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil with the warning in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Then God expected Adam 
to command or tzava, Eve, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and to pass on God's warning to her in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. God did not say about Adam what he said about Abraham. He didn't say that about Adam. God did not say about Adam, for I know him that he will command tzava, Eve after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment the Lord may bring upon Adam, that which he has spoken of him. See, but God did say that about Abraham. And it's very important when he said that in verse 19, Genesis 18, 19, for I know him that he will command, Sabah, his children and his household after him. They'll keep the way of the Lord to do judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which is spoken of him. And Abraham did not just command, Sabah, his children, but the verse says Abraham also commanded, Sabah, his household after him. That meant that Abraham made sure that all the folks in his caravan that were following Abraham to keep the way of the Lord, that meant that Abraham set his caravan in order to follow God. That's another meaning of the word tzavah, to order. God said in several places, put your house in order, you're going to die. That's the word tzavah also. That meant that all anyone had to do was to look at Abraham's life and how he ordered his family and his caravan, and they would see what it does it mean to keep the way of the Lord. What does it mean to lead a caravan spiritually? They would see Abraham leading his caravan to keep the way of the Lord by worshiping Jehovah Jesus. And when Abraham spoke of God, they would see a man who believed that Jehovah Jesus is the God of gods and Lord of lords, showing the truth of Deuteronomy 10, 17, where it says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, mighty, terrible. They would see Abraham leading his caravan to keep the way of the Lord by when they saw him praying to Jehovah Jesus when they had needs, when he had needs, and they would understand the truth of Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, very present help in time of trouble. And Abraham had plenty of trouble. And so they would understand that they would see a life, a living life example of Hebrews 4, 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. They would see Abraham. They would see him leading his caravan to keep the way of the Lord by giving thanks to Jehovah Jesus, and they would understand the truth of Psalm 136 too. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for his mercy endureth forever. And when Abraham met that godly person, Melchizedek, and they all watched Abraham do what we've seen in Genesis 14, 20, and he gave him tithes of all, when everyone in Abraham's caravan saw Abraham honor God by giving a tenth to Melchizedek, they all would say, yep, that's Abraham. That's my leader. Exactly what I expected of him. That's Abraham. And they would see Abraham leading his caravan to keep the way of the Lord by honoring Jehovah Jesus with a life that's holy and true and avoiding any appearance of evil. And especially everyone in the caravan, you can imagine, crowded around and watched as Abraham refused to take any wealth that originated with the king of Sodom in his wicked ways. And Abraham said in Genesis 14, 22, as we've seen already, 23, and he said to the king of Sodom, I lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the most high God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet 
that I'll not take anything that's thine, lest thou should say, I've made Abraham rich. And everybody saw that? Abraham do that? Abraham to refuse anything to the king of Sodom? And they all said, yep, that's Abraham. That's our leader. That's exactly what I expected Abraham to do. And they would see Abraham leading his caravan and keeping the way of the Lord by sacrificing to Jehovah Jesus. And they would come to understand the truth, the kernel of truth in Leviticus 16.11, that the life of the flesh was given by God and it's in the blood. And God gave it upon the altar to make an atonement for the souls. It's the blood that makes an atonement for the souls. And when Abraham fell into sin, as they watched him do that too, they would see Abraham leading his caravan to keep the way of the Lord by confessing and forsaking and asking forgiveness from Jehovah Jesus as they saw Abraham run to his altar during those times. And every time they'd see him do that, they'd say, yep, that's Abraham. And everyone in Abraham's caravan would be led to Jehovah Jesus because of what God said about Abraham in this verse in Genesis 18, 19. I know him that he will command his children and his household after him that they shall keep the way of the Lord. So the question is, we looked at Adam, God couldn't say that about Adam. We looked at Abraham, God said that about Abraham. And the question is, what does he say about us? When God looks at us, would he say the words of Genesis 18, 19? I know him, that he'll command his household and his, his children his household that they'll keep after him, they'll keep the way of the Lord. And the point is, is that God did say this about Abraham, which means that wherever Abraham went, he was an ambassador for God. And Abraham showed to those who saw his caravan when what it looked like for a spiritual leader to command Savah, his children and his household after him, that they should keep the way of the Lord. And whoever came to be a part, whoever was so fortunate, so blessed by God to become a part of Abraham's caravan, came under Abraham's Savah, came under Abraham's command after him to keep the way of the Lord. And when Hagar became a part of Abraham's caravan, she came under this Abraham's command of Savah after him to keep the way of the Lord. And it was a great mercy for Hagar. It was a great mercy for Hagar. Hagar met Jehovah Jesus under Abraham's command in Abraham's caravan. And because Hagar came into Abraham's caravan, Hagar could say, she could say the words of Ephesians 2, 12 to 14. She could say, at that time, I was without Jehovah Jesus. I was an alien from the commonwealth of Jehovah Jesus. I was a stranger from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Jehovah Jesus, under Abraham's command, I who was far off have been made nigh by the future blood. Jehovah Jesus, he's my peace. She could say all those things. And Hagar could say that because she became a part of Abraham's caravan. It was, Hagar could say, it was the mercy of God when I became a part of Abraham's caravan. And when Hagar then had this terrible experience, which she did, that resulted in her being driven out of the caravan to a fountain all alone out there in the desert, no provision, no protection, but Hagar could say that it was so good to have God find me that she could say it was the mercy of God when I was driven out of this caravan to this lone fountain out in the desert because that's where God found me. And when Hagar was crying her heart out at that fountain there because she thought she's gonna see her death, she's gonna see the death of her unborn baby, and God then gave her the promise 
that her baby would not only be born, but he'd become a great people, many people. And Hagar could say that it was so good to have God's promise about the future of my baby that made me feel so good, that Hagar could say it was the mercy of God that my heart was broken for my baby. And as Hagar looked back over her life, Hagar could see one mercy after another. Hagar could say, when you look at my life, she's just talking to us today, Hagar would say, when you look at my life, don't say the mercy of God, say the mercies of God. She'd say, don't say the mercy of God, say the mercy of God, because that's what my life has been, one mercy after another. She would say, the mercy of God has come to me like a flock, a great flock. She could say, the mercy of God is coming to me like the waves on the beach, As soon as one comes in, here comes another one right after it. That's one right after another. That's the mercies of God to me. That's why when God spoke of marrying Israel, who had been so sinful, so rebellious, so rejecting of the Lord Jesus Christ, but when he spoke of marrying her, when Israel had become a prostitute, spiritually speaking, and God told Hosea, go marry a prostitute. Boy, that's something to show how God feels about Israel and in their unfaithfulness to him. And in the book of Hosea, when God speaks about marrying Israel, he says in Hosea 2.19, for I will betroth thee unto me forever, yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies, mercies. So God would say, don't say mercy, Hosea, when you write that, say mercies. And right along with Hagar, when Israel responds back to God, Israel says to God in Daniel 9, 9, to the Lord our God belong mercies, mercies, not mercy, mercies and forgivenesses. (laughs) They said that. (laughs) Though we have rebelled against him, Israel says, don't say mercy, say mercies. And when we look back at our days, and starting from the morning of our days, Jeremiah teaches us, to along with Hagar, say these words in Lamentations 3, 22 through 23. It is of the Lord's mercies. Don't say mercy. It's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions, don't say compassion, say compassions, fail not. They, don't say it, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. See, it's looking at the mercies of God, the compassions of God that are new, and you look at all them and their abundance, and you say, great is God's faithfulness. Jeremiah teaches us, don't say mercy of God. When you write my verses, say mercies of God. It's of the Lord's mercies. And when we see the Lord Jesus Christ returning to rescue Jerusalem from all of the enemies that are gonna come against him, all the people, we see him coming and he's saying in the beginning of the book of the rescue of Jerusalem, which is Zechariah, in Zechariah 1.16, he says, therefore, thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in, saith the Lord of hosts. So as God's coming to rescue Jerusalem, God says, don't say I'm returned with mercy, but say it, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. And Paul teaches us He says, look, when you talk about God, call him, and he teaches us what to call him in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, where he said, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And so Paul would say to us, don't call God the Father of mercy. Call him the Father of mercies. 
And the one who taught us the most to speak about the mercies of God is David, king of Israel. He's the one who taught us the most with all these psalms in Psalm 6, 4. Save me for thy mercy's sake in Psalm 25, 6. Remember, O Lord, thy tender mercies and thy loving kindnesses, for they are have been ever of old. Psalm 40, verse 11. Withhold not thy tender mercies from me. Psalm 44, 26. Arise for our help and redeem us for thy mercies sake. And this the psalm where he comes back to God after the terrible sin of lusting after another man's life, killing him so that he can take her. Psalm 51, he says, what's his basis of Psalm 51? One, have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy mercies, tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Psalm 69, 16, turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Psalm 89, one, the one we sing, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. With my mouth I'll make known his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm 103, verse 4, God says, he crowns you with tender mercies. 106, 7, he's speaking about Israel, and he said, they didn't understand, they remembered not the multitude of thy mercies, but provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. Psalm 106.45, he says, he remembered for them, for Israel, his covenant, and repented according to the multitude of his mercies. God did that. Psalm 119.41, let thy mercies come also unto me, O Lord, even thy salvation according to thy word. And then verse 77 of Psalm 119, let thy tender mercies come unto me that I may live. And then Psalm 156, great, great, he says, are thy tender mercies, O Lord. Psalm 145, 9, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies over all his works. And Jacob, when he's begging God to save his life in Genesis 32, he thought, I'm a goner for sure. As he's looking at Esau coming after him with 400 men to finish him off. He comes to God in Genesis 32, 10, and he says, I'm not worthy of the least of all thy mercies. And when Paul begs us and he says to us, be reasonable, Be reasonable and present your body as a living sacrifice to God. He says it this way in Romans 12, 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So Paul is saying to us, don't just consider the mercy of God, but consider all the mercies of God. And Hagar, along with Jacob, along with the people of Israel, along with King David, along with Paul, could sit down and make a long list of the mercies of God. And the challenge is, what about us? That's a good exercise to sit down with pen and paper and to write down the list of the mercies of God to us. And the greatest of all the mercies of God was that he spared us from the hell we deserved by his voluntary death, by the voluntary submission when God became a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and died for our sins. No greater mercy than that. No mercy makes us a greater, what the hymn writer said, debtor, as he wrote, a debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offering to bring the terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. So now, as we look at Hagar here, and we see her, and she's come to this place, and we're back in Genesis 16, and we see her in Genesis 16, 13. She's absolutely amazed. She's looking at the mercies of God. She's amazed that God should take care of her. And she says in verse 13, she called the name of the Lord. She gives, calls him the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God, seest me. You see me? 
For she said, have I also here looked after him that seeth me? She just can't believe it. She just can't believe it. She looks at her life. She sees how she's ruined her life through her stupid, foolish pride. And she sees the mercies of God. And one particular mercy just stands out to her right now. And it's the fact that God sees her and God heard her. And she's so shocked at this mercy of God to have taken notice of her that she gives God this name. She says, that's my name. The name I'm going to give to God is thou God seest me. She's filled with wonder that God has cared so much for her. She turns around. She asks herself this question. She says, boy, he sees me. Have I cared about him? Do I take him seriously? Have I bothered to care about God? That's their question. And she saw, you know, that's a question that she was not alone in asking. The father of missions, many people think that Carey is the father of missions. Actually, William Carey, the English Baptist preacher, William Carey, he actually said the real father of modern missions is a man named Count Zizendorf. Zizendorf was born many years before him in the year 1700. And Count Zizendorf's life totally changed when he went into the, well, now it's a state art museum, but anyway, when he went to the state art museum in Dusseldorf. And there he came and he was looking at the paintings. He came to a painting by an Italian painter, Fetti. And the painting, don't go to Dusseldorf and look for it because now they moved it to Munich. But anyway, still there, go to Munich and see it. So the painting by Fetti was of the Lord during his sufferings. It's a face of the Lord during his sufferings. When Pilate presented him to the people and Pilate said, behold the man. So that's what Fetti wrote in Latin, ecce homo, behold the man. And then at the bottom of this painting, there's an inscription in Latin and it reads this. It says, this have I suffered for you. Now what will you do for me? That's what it says. And when Count Zissendorf, and who was in Germany, in Dusseldorf there, and he saw that, he dropped to his knees. And in the middle of the museum there, and with tears, he committed his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before this time, he was happy-go-lucky. He was on the Wanderjahr. He was uh, the gap year before he was going to get serious and do whatever he was going to do and make his career. And he was traveling all around Germany, just having a good time in all throughout Germany. He says, oh, why not go to this art museum? And he went to the art museum in Dusseldorf, and everything changed for him as an abrupt halt to it came to him as he really the impact of Romans 12 one and two fell on him. And he said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, as we've said, present your bodies. And that's what he did. And it caused Count Zissendorf to consider the mercies of God. And right there in the museum, he drops to his knees. He doesn't care who's looking at him. And from that point on, Count Zissendorf was determined that his life was not going to be molded by the world, that his mind was going to be renewed and his life was going to be transformed. And he was going to be able to prove in his life what was for him God's good and acceptable and perfect will for his life. And he established many missions and hospitals. And over a hundred years later, Francis Havigail saw the same painting, still in Dusseldorf at that time, and the painting inspired her to write the hymn, I gave my life for thee. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou mightst ransom be and raised up from the dead. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? I suffered much for thee, more than thy tongue can tell, of bitterest agony to rescue thee from hell. I've borne, I've borne it all for thee. What hast thou borne for me? I've borne, I've borne it all for thee. What hast thou borne for me? That's the question of Hagar. That's what she's asking herself in verse 13. God did all this for me? He cared for me? What have I done for him? Have I looked after him? 
Now, she so wanted this to be ever and ever a place of a change in her life that she named the well this name, Beer Laharoi, so that she would never forget that's where she gave her life to the Lord Jesus Christ, Jehovah Jesus. So she names it literally the well of the one who sees. The well of the one who sees. For the rest of her life, whenever she would think about, there is a well. There is a well in the middle of a desert where God saw me, and I gave my life to Jehovah Jesus there at that well. And then as she may find herself back to it, or maybe close to it, and she would say, you know, I got to go to that well. And she'd go by that well, and she could imagine her kneeling down at that well and saying, Lord, you've never changed. You've always continued to see me. And I'm going to keep on asking myself the question, the question of this well, have I looked after you? Have I given my life to you? What was the response that I'm using my life for because you have done so much for me? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Hagar and for that you saw her, you found her, you saw her, you turned her around, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord, for repentance and the ability to come back to God. We thank you so much, Lord, for writing down all these things for our learning, Lord, and we thank you so much for your precious Holy Spirit who teaches us the truth in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. If you would like to hear more of this message or other messages by Tom Cantor, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Thanks for listening to Friendship with God with Tom Cantor. Looking for an exciting career in the medical field or biotech industry? Join Scanabody's Biologics, founded by a Christian businessman, Tom Cantor. It's a premier company dedicated to advancing patient care and serving the community of San Diego. Scanabody's has global operations and over 700 employees and growing. And if you have a heart for people and a desire to join a leading biotech company, call us 619-258-9300, 619-258-9300, scanabodies.com, that's scanabodies.com.